Amen. I would invite you to take your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and open to Psalm 85. Just one page over from this morning. We did Psalm 84 this morning. We'll do Psalm 85 this evening. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's help now. Let's all pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have sent what is good into our land in sending your son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, would you bless Uh, the preaching of your word this evening, that we might see Jesus Christ and him crucified. Open our hearts to him again this evening, we pray. O Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. So would you send the Spirit, would you grant the increase in our hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I have a simple question for you this evening. Very simple question. What if a kiss... Could fix everything. What if a kiss could fix everything? You know, it's a silly question in a lot of ways, but um, what if a kiss really could fix everything and put everything back the way it was supposed to be? You know, we hear all these fairy tales growing up, right? Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and it's cute, you know, when you see little girls, they hear these stories, and then, you know, they're all chasing the boys around the playground, trying to give them a kiss. And of course, the, girl, the boys all know that the girls have cooties, right? So they've got to run away, get away from the girls, and one of the boys will, of course, trip and fall, skin his knee, face plant, and uh, here comes mommy to the rescue. Got to kiss the boo-boo, and everything is right with the world again. Life was simple 
<laughs> and you give it a few years, and those kids grow up, and before you know it, the boys are chasing the girls, and they learn pretty quick that maybe a kiss doesn't fix everything. You might find yourself asking, does a kiss fix anything at all? Uh, My life is so much more complicated than it used to be. Well, it really depends. It depends on who's kissing who. Is it Prince Charming? Is it the princess? That matters. (laughs) It matters a lot. And I think that's a helpful lens for us to look at Psalm 85 through. As we look at this psalm, we're going to see, very simply, God kisses us in Jesus Christ. And that fixes everything. Very simple. If you want to make it a little more technical, we could say, the Word speaks peace and embraces our captive flesh. Therefore, we flourish. We'll look at that in three points. From verses 1 to 3, we'll look at a six-fold piece. A six-fold piece from verses 1 to 3. And then from verses 4 to 9, we'll look at the plea for peace. The plea for peace. And then finally, in 10 to 13, we'll look at the kiss of peace. From 10 to 13. As we see how God kisses us in Jesus Christ and fixes everything. And so as we open the psalm, we notice that the sons of Korah are praising the Lord for the salvation that he's shown his people. And they list six things, right? We can count six blessings in these first few verses that the sons of Korah want to thank God for. First, we see, Lord, you were favorable to your land. And we notice right away that the covenant name of the Lord is being invoked. Yahweh, Jehovah. The God who promises himself to his people. The God of the burning bush. That's something to keep in mind as we go through this psalm. Right off the bat, they're claiming God's word as their assurance. And then, of course, the first praise item is given. You were favorable to your land. God has shown favor. He's taken pleasure in his land. And we have to ask, what land? are the sons of Korah talking about here? You know, we might initially think of the promised land. We might initially think of the Middle East. And surely that's part of it. Israel and Judah were blessed. God was favorable to them. But poetry, it's usually speaking about more than just a spot on a map. It may talk about a spot on the map, but it's speaking about more than just that. The word used there for land could just as easily be translated as earth. Lord, you are favorable to your earth. It would carry with it the symbolic idea of created order. Lord, you were favorable to creation. You were favorable to mankind. And we see from what follows that the psalmist is concerned with all of creation flourishing and mankind walking in righteousness before God. Martin Luther, in his reflection on this psalm, when he sees that land there, he says, it's all of that, all of that at once and more. He sees the land here as a prophetic pointer looking to the Virgin Mary. He says, this is all of that, but it's also the Virgin Mary. Prophetically speaking, the one to whom the angel Gabriel would come in Luke 1. What did Gabriel say? 
She's highly favored. She's found favor with God. And as we go through the psalm, I think that's helpful to keep in mind because all of the law and the prophets hang upon Christ and God has been favorable to us in Jesus Christ. But not only has God been favorable to Judah, to Israel, to us in Jesus Christ, he's restored the fortunes of Jacob. And Jacob is simply a way of talking about God's people. It's like a pet name for his people. Jacob, God's man, God's elect. God has been favorable and he's returned the fortunes of Jacob. That word fortunes in Hebrew is very related to the word for captivity. So if you're looking at a different translation, some will say, you returned Jacob from captivity. You've, been, you've returned the fortunes of Jacob. You know, we don't really know when this psalm was written, but the best candidate that we have would be when Judah was brought back from captivity in Babylon. God returned his people as if from the grave to new life. And while the return from Babylon is the most likely candidate for the initial context of this psalm, it by no means exhausts what this psalm is saying. God has always turned it around for his people. He's always returned the captivity of his people. It took time for God to hear the cries of his people there in Egypt, but he returned the captivity of Jacob there from Egypt. It took time for God to return the captivity of Judah from Babylon, but God did. He turned it around, and he'll turn it around for you and me as well. So we're under bondage to sin. He sent Jesus Christ to turn it around for Jacob. And he will raise us up in that last day at the great resurrection of the dead. Brothers and sisters, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling discouraged, remember how faithful God has been to his people time and time and time again. He's never let us down. He's never abandoned his people. So replay that again and again. God's history of redemption. It's needed encouragement in these days. What's more, the psalmist goes on, you forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered all their sins. Selah. God's shown grace to his people. He's forgiven or he's literally lifted, lifted their iniquity. And not only that, he's covered their sin. You see, from the very heights to the depths, he's lifted and he's covered our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We see the heights and depths of God's love poetically here, and that he forgives us. And then, of course, it says, Selah, which we think means stop, think about that, chew on that for a minute. God's great love, consider it, get lost in God's love, thinking about that. How could God forgive his people? You know, was the psalmist simply trusting in the blood of bulls and goats? Was he simply trusting in what was happening in a brick-and-mortar temple there in Jerusalem? Is that how the Old Testament people of God were forgiven? No, it wasn't. Remember what we talked about this morning? That was all like a VBS lesson 
pointing the people of God to the true Lamb of God who was to come in Jesus Christ and forgive all our sins. If it was to forgive their sins, they wouldn't have needed to do it over and over again, the author of Hebrews says. Jesus Christ fulfills all sacrifice, all righteousness for his people. And he is the Lamb of God. He fulfills the sacrifice. He took the wrath that we deserved. The psalmist goes on and he says, You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. He knew that God was justly angry at sin. And evil, brothers and sisters, when we see it, it ought to make our blood boil, shouldn't it? I mean, of course it should. When you see things that are wrong, we should be mad. We shouldn't rejoice in evil. We shouldn't rejoice in wickedness. It should make us angry. It's not the way it's supposed to be. How much more? And we can sin in this very easily. We can sin in our anger. But how much more does God, the holy, righteous God of the universe, have a right to be angry with sin? Of course he should be. And he is. And that's good news, brothers and sisters. That means evil isn't going to win. But you know, that's also bad news for us because the truth is we have all sorts of wickedness and sin clinging to us. And so then how can we go to that holy and just God and fellowship with Him? We can because God embraces us in Jesus Christ. His wrath fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross so that he could punish sin, that we could be welcomed home. His wrath was satisfied. We see the ferocity of God's anger against sin at the cross, and that anger, that wrath, magnifies the ferocity of his love for his people. He was willing to go through that to save his sheep that he would send his only begotten Son into the world, that we might be saved through grace only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful picture. The psalmist has really laid it out for us. Uh, He's listed six things worth praising God over, and all of them really are worth contemplating and thinking about. But it's not a perfect picture. You know, there's something missing. We talked about it this morning. What do you think is missing from this picture, boys and girls? He doesn't go home. He doesn't enter into the presence of God. He doesn't go to heaven. Not yet, at least. It's missing, and it's interesting that he stops where he does. We feel like we're just at the cusp of going into the temple and rejoicing in the presence of God, and the psalmist changes the topic. He abruptly turns his attention, calling on God for present need of salvation. And so we join the psalmist here in singing, then, a plea for peace. Here in verse 4, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I mean, notice how striking that transition is. He feels like he's going this way, he's just running along, and then he changes direction completely. 
goes from praising to asking, petitioning God for something new. The mood is completely different. Instead of turning from God, God turning from his anger, it seems like God is angry with his people here, doesn't it? And the psalmist is feeling the heat. But notice that the psalmist has faith. He's just talked about how good God has been to him. And so he continues that and he goes to the Lord pleading for mercy. And when we feel abandoned, we need to do this. We need to remember how good God has been to us and go pleading for mercy. Be driven back to the cross again and again. And he says, restore us, revive us, show us mercy, send a quickening, send a season of refreshing. We need revival. And it's a prayer that we need to pray as well. We look around the world, we see evil being called good and good being called evil. And it's just passed off. Like it's no big deal. We need an awakening. We need people to wake up. We need God to have mercy on this land. God is angry with the world. He's angry with the wicked every day, says the psalmist. But God has always turned it around for Jacob. He's always sent revival and refreshing. He sent reformation when the church looked like it was about to die. He sent Martin Luther and John Calvin that the church could recover the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we need God's presence in our life. We need refreshing because we can feel like we are languishing here under the anger of an angry God. Uh, But Scripture says God's angry with the wicked every day, and the psalmist feels like there's no end in sight here. He says, will you be angry with us through all generations? Are you going to be angry forever and ever? Angry at my great-grandkids? It's a rotten feeling that the psalmist has. Boys and girls, have you ever gotten in a fight, an argument with your brother or sister? Maybe young people, you've been dating and... um, you got in an argument with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And you say, oh, I feel terrible about what I said. You feel sick to your stomach. And you say, is she ever going to forgive me? And you're living in the doghouse. You've got to pick up the phone. You've got to call. You've got to say, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to see you again. That's what the psalmist is really doing here, except when you're dating, that could be it. You may never see them again. They may walk out, you may get dumped. It's different when you're married. You can plead those marriage vows. That's what the psalmists are doing here. They're pleading God's marriage vows to his people as they're picking up the phone and calling God. You look at verse 7, they're calling on the capital L-O-R-D, the God of the covenant, God's covenant name, the God of promise. And what's more, they say, let me see your steadfast, your unfailing love. And the word there is God's chesed. It's a famous word in Hebrew, chesed. Unfailing love is a good translation. Steadfast love is a good translation. You could also say it's like covenant love or marriage vow love. It's a totally special kind of love that God has for his people. My pastor back home likes to call chesed, God's chesed love for his people, God's sticky love, boys and girls. This is God's sticky love for his people. When I was young, I always wanted to get 
the sticky toys, like Silly Putty, or you go to the gumball machine, you could get the slimy toys and play with those. My mom didn't like that. You know, it, she was afraid that when I got those sticky toys, what would I do? I'd be playing with it, and then I'd get it in the carpet or something else where it didn't belong, and it would make a mess, and you couldn't get it out because it was all sticky. Well, that's what God's love is like for his people in Jesus Christ. It's like sticky love. Once it gets on you, you can't get that love off. That's God's love for his people. And he sealed that covenant love, that chesed love, for his children with his own precious blood on the cross. So we never have to doubt that we are loved by God when we look at the cross. Jesus Christ loves his people. And the sons of Korah knew God's love, and then they cry out in faith for God to grant his salvation to them. And that's really at the center of this psalm, structurally speaking. Everything is funneling into this verse, and everything is funneling out from this verse. This present need of salvation, it's the hinge that the psalm turns on. Grant us your salvation. That present need of rescue. We constantly need God's rescue. We constantly need God's salvation because we know that there is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And though the psalmist may not have known Jesus' name yet, he came pretty close to calling on Jesus' name here, almost verbatim. You see, that word in Hebrew is very close to the name Joshua. If you didn't know this, Jesus is just the Greek version of the name Joshua. And Joshua means salvation. So what the psalmist is saying here, give me your salvation. Give me your Jesus. It's literally what he's saying. The spirit of prophecy is crying out in the sons of Korah, grant us Jesus, send Jesus. They might not have understood everything yet, but the Holy Spirit was working in their heart, prophetically calling on the Lord to send Jesus to save. And Jesus is the one who ties this whole psalm together. So after calling on God, the psalmist sits and he waits for the answer. What does he say in the waiting? What do you and I say when we're waiting for God to answer? Sons of Korah say he promises peace to his people. You know, what gives the sons of Korah such confidence that they could say he promises peace to his people? Even when they feel like there's a million things going wrong in the world and in their lives, what gives them confidence to say this? As we read Psalm 84 this morning, we heard about the doorkeepers in the temple of God. That was the job of the sons of Korah. They were the doorkeepers. They were there at the worship of God, and they would open the door to people as they came in. So they were there at very many worship services. And you know how the worship service of God ended. It ended much like ours, with the reading of the benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The ironic blessing where the priest was to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, and the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Give you peace. You see, in worship, the sons of Korah were formed not by their feelings, but by the word of God. 
They had heard the word of God read to them over and over and over again, and that word of God had shaped them. That is an application for us today where we are. Emotions are wonderful, they're great. But emotions are not going to save you when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. When you feel like God has abandoned you, when the world looks black and bleak, emotions won't help. The Word of God will. We build our hope upon the certainty of God's Word, not our feelings. As wonderful as they may be, we're fallen creatures, and we tend not to trust God's Word. We tend to live by sight and not by faith. But Jesus Christ will speak peace to his people. And so that is encouragement for us, even on our darkest days. Boys and girls, let your faith stand on the B-I-B-L-E, the Word of God alone. Build your hope on the Bible. Thank God for his Word, because the Lord will keep his people, the psalmist says. He won't let them return to Lady Folly. He set his sticky love, his electing love on his people. God's saints will persevere to the end because God will preserve them. God's salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Those who fear God, or those we could say today, those who have faith in God, know that God is near to them in salvation. Because Jesus is near to us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That God's glory may dwell in our land with us where we are. Just where you're at today. That's where Jesus is. He's with you today where you are in your struggle in the valley of Baca. He's there with you. The psalmist had to wait for God to speak peace to him. But brothers and sisters, God has already spoken peace to us in sending Jesus Christ his salvation into the world. The glory of God dwelt among us here in our land, our world. Jesus spoke peace as he gave his life in atonement for sin. That we could be welcomed into God's presence. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is finished. He's paid the debt. There's been many false prophets that arose since that day. They said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. But God has spoken lasting peace to us in Jesus Christ. Christ said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. So be encouraged by that. God has spoken peace to us, ultimately. And as we think about Christ coming and speaking peace to us, uh, we should then finally look at that kiss of peace. You look at verse 10 there. We see steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. And righteousness looks down from the sky. This is some of the most poetic, beautiful language in the Psalter. And the church fathers, when they read this, they saw all these different angles that, was, that were going on. You know, faithfulness, love, righteousness, peace. They all come together, they embrace, they kiss. They saw there a picture of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
That's where love and faithfulness kiss. It's in Jesus Christ. And it's an intimate picture. They're personified. We see the eternal Son of God took on mortal flesh. He came to bless our land. He came to speak peace to us. Heaven and earth were made one in His body and they kissed, they embraced in that intimate picture. There in the manger, we see the great love of God for the world come together with His covenant faithfulness. As faithfulness sprang from the earth, God was born of a virgin. As God favored His land, as He favored creation, as Jesus Christ was born in that manger. That word for peace, is actually, or for kiss, is actually a very rare one. In the Psalter. It only shows up in one other place in the Psalms where it's talking about kiss, and that's Psalm 2. Of course, if you remember that, Psalm 2 is calling on the kings of the world to kiss the sun, lest they perish in the way, lest the Messiah come and dash the kingdoms of this world like a potter's vessel. They'll be shattered. Kiss the sun, show homage, show respect to the Messiah, the Christ of God who rules the nations. Respect King Jesus. Think of a contrast there between those two kisses. Between the Psalm 2 man, the Messiah, who rules the nations, smashes the kingdoms of wickedness, offers peace to us from the godless nations, who was betrayed by a kiss on the cross as the nations surrounded him, wagging their tongues, making fun of him on the cross. Jesus Christ The Prince of Peace comes to us as the Psalm 85 man, kissing us with the kiss of peace, promising that everything will flourish because of His work, because of Christ coming to take the curse of the law for His people on the cross. We are free. As God the Father in His perfect righteousness looked down from heaven, That is just wrath against evil satisfied by Christ's sacrifice. He raised Christ from the grave. And there that Easter morning, faithfulness sprang from the ground, sprang from the earth, as Jesus Christ sprang forth from the tomb. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the new creation. His resurrection is the resurrection of all things, the flourishing of all things. The curse, brothers and sisters, is being cured by a kiss, as far as the curse is found. That's how far Jesus Christ will make the blessings flow so we can sing joy to the world. That all-encompassing cosmic or new creation hope that Jesus gives us is on the mind of the psalmist here. The sons of Korah were waiting for the day when salvation would appear in the manger. Peter says they were writing these things, brethren, for our benefit. Angel minds were longing to peer in to what we would know in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has come. And we long to see the day when He will appear once again. God has sent what is good into the earth when He sent His only begotten Son. Great is the mystery of godliness. And the world is still fallen. We're not home yet. But Jesus Christ is the turning point in world history. He's the start of a new world, a world of blessing, 
The kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ, and it is coming at the second advent. That blessing won't come in its fullness until that day, but it has begun. The world's not there yet, but the psalmist is looking forward to that day when what? Not just your land, Lord. Not just the land that God has been favorable to, but our land will yield its increase. Because Christ took on flesh, He took creation to Himself and was bound to that tree of cursing. As He hung on the cross, that tree of cursing became the tree of life for His people. You understand? As we come to Him by faith, we are eating that fruit of the new creation. And by the Holy Spirit, He then begins to bear fruit in our lives. We walk the road of righteousness, walking in His ways. And we too look for that day with the sons of Korah when the kingdom will be made plain and full, when the harvest will come in its fullness and everything will be made right. And so we live a life of redeemed gratitude to the Lord. And we see that in verse 13. Righteousness goes before Him and prepares the ways of His steps. And we see there, it's the same idea as Psalm 1. The righteous man walking in the way, the narrow way. Not the broad way that leads to destruction, but the straight and narrow way that leads home to God. And Jesus Christ is that man who's walked the path of righteousness perfectly before the face of God. Jesus Christ is the one who's done it and He sets us in the way of righteousness as He recreates us by the Spirit. We put to death the old man. He raises to life the new man that we could live new lives as He's remaking and transforming creation. And that hope is wonderful because it spills out into all of creation. One day we know that instead of going the way of the world, the world is going to go in the way of righteousness. We sing about it. We sang about it this morning in Psalm 150. The Psalter goes to what? Psalm 150. Let everything that hath life and breath praise the Lord. Praise Him with the lute. Praise Him with the lyre. Everything that has life and breath praise the Lord. We look forward to that day when Christ will be all and in all. But we're not there yet. So we join John the Baptist in singing what we sang, Comfort, comfort ye my people. There's an allusion here to that as well. As John's quoting Isaiah, it's likely that there's interplay between Isaiah and Psalm 85, with that righteousness that goes before his steps. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was a preacher of righteousness in the midst of a hypocritical and sinful people. And he was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, brothers and sisters, we go out with that same message. And we call the nations to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ has come to speak peace. Repent while today is still called day. Be made new. We long for that day when the kingdom is unveiled in its fullness. 
Brothers and sisters, I have one application for you this evening. I hope that it's encouraging to you. It's that Jesus Christ comforts us here in this psalm. That picture, that intimate picture of how tenderly He came to us. He did not come in wrath to smash creation, to destroy everything. That's not how truth and love have met. It says they came together in a kiss. In a kiss. They embrace. Jesus Christ came into this world to kiss and to embrace and to see things flourish. The church fathers, when they read this psalm, they also would go to the Song of Songs and they would see there, Oh, that He, that is God, would kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. That's Christ's bride, the church, speaking. Longing and praying that God would send the bridegroom. God would send Jesus Christ to kiss His bride. Jesus Christ has come to us tenderly in all our sin, in all our shame, in all our brokenness. He came tenderly to us to comfort and restore, to see us flourish. Maybe this evening you're feeling beaten down, you're feeling decrepit, you're feeling sinful, you're feeling ashamed, you feel ugly. Jesus Christ has come and He rejoices over the bride of His youth. And He kisses us so that we might flourish. He's remaking creation. He's making us new by the Spirit. This is wonderful news, brothers and sisters. Remember that tenderness that Jesus Christ has shown us. And so, I ask you again, as I asked at the beginning, what if a kiss really could fix everything? It can. Forget about Prince Charming. Forget about fantasy world, fairy tales. We have the Prince of Peace in Jesus Christ. He has come into a real hurting world. And He will fix everything. Praise the Lord. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for the great gift of Your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You rejoice over the bride of Your youth. Oh Lord, we are not worthy of this. But Lord Jesus, we thank You that You do this anyway. That You sing over us as the prophet Zephaniah says, in spite of all our sin and our shame, you by your grace, your great love with which you loved us, have made us alive together with you, Lord Jesus, that we might begin to flourish and walk in the way of righteousness, the way that you have designed for us, O God. Send your Spirit, we pray, that we might be equipped to do this. Remake us. Make our hearts true. Give us that Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.